Welcome to the Gonzo Chronicles. I'm your host, Cyrus Alderwood, the official spokesman for Generation X. Stick around. It's going to get weird, as always. Man, is it early. I mean, it's early. It's December 4th, and uh, it's not even 8.30 in the morning yet, Saturday. I've been awake for a long time. Don't ask me why. No idea. But, you know, to fill the morning, I decided I would try to find this movie called uh, The Sentinel. And I mentioned it a while back during October. Uh, one of those episodes of the Gonzo Chronicles where I talked about the you know, best horror movies of all time. Uh, yeah, it's on Tubi, the app on the, on your smart TV. So go check that out. And who's emailing me at 8.30? I'll check in a minute. But, uh, you know, we went from October where it's nothing but horror films to November where it's really nothing really exciting at all to watch. And now here we are in December. And guess what? Christmas movies all freaking month. Uh, yeah, I know some people who are glued to the Hallmark Channel because it's been Christmas movies for two months. So, like, what are your favorite Christmas movies? It's kind of curious. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I think so. Um, you know, there's some. I, went, I looked up a list of like some of the best horror or uh, Christmas movies of all time, and a lot of these like are kind of boring. I tell you one I really liked was Krampus. It's kind of a Christmas horror. Uh, if you have uh, Netflix, you can watch the Christmas Chronicles. Part two is out now too. Really, really good stuff. I think one of my favorite of all time uh, Christmas movies would be Home Alone. And man, that came out in nineteen ninety. I was just barely in high school, <laughs> but um, great movie, man. I remember it well. I can't believe that Macaulay Culkin grew up to look like a heroin addict. I don't know. Maybe he is a heroin addict. I have no idea. Yeah, another one of my favorite Christmas movies was Scrooged. Bill Murray, one of my favorite all-time actors. The guy is hilarious in everything, even when he's not trying to be hilarious. But, yeah, Scrooged, I hope I hope to see that on. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be getting plenty of Ralphie in A Christmas Story, which I love. One of my favorite movies, too, for the holidays. And uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, awesome. That's a no-brainer. So, um, yeah, there was a. I, I'm a sucker for like old black and white films, and there was one. Uh, trying to think of it, it was um, Bob Hope was in it. Uh, the Lemon Drop Kid. That's it. Um, actually, that was a really really good movie. 
if you like old black and white films. Um, I, like I said, I'm kind of a sucker for those. Uh, Holiday Affair was another really good one. That had uh, uh, Janet Lee, which if you remember her, she was from Psycho. And that's also, uh, um, well, I can't remember her name. <laughs> um, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, it's Jamie Lee Curtis as well. So, really, really good movie there. Uh, a friend of mine actually brought up one the other day that, that they really liked. Um, Lethal Weapon. And they were trying to say that was a Christmas movie. But you know what? It might be. It took place at Christmas. Um, and there was another movie, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, that he liked to. You know, one I never really got into very much was Elf. The only part of that movie that was really, really funny was like that incredible belch. That <laughs> was just just nuts but you can never go wrong with the muppets christmas carol just keep that in mind um i'm not really i you know recently this year for the first time ever i actually watched the nightmare before christmas and that came out in 1993 actually i like that that was a pretty good little movie gremlins I, I would call a christmas movie too so uh if you haven't seen well everybody's probably seen gremlins unless you're a millennial if you're a millennial go watch gremlins seriously you don't know what you're missing. Um, there's always just classics like White Christmas and It's a Wonderful Wonderful World or Wonderful Life or whatever the heck that movie was. Um, never really got into those that much, to be honest with you. Um, it happened on Fifth Avenue. That was that was good. Uh, then you always had the, like that old film, Christmas in Connecticut. Um, and uh, that that was actually that was a really good really good movie. Um, let's see what else was there, uh, as far as Christmas movies. Um, I did look up a top five, Bad Santa didn't make it. I've actually never seen Bad Santa and a Christmas story came in at number six, but, um, here's one I've never seen called the shop around the corner. That's an old black and white film. I'm surprised I haven't seen that. Uh, Miracle on 34th street was in the top five, a movie called Tangerine. I've never heard of Tangerine. Um, so I, I, maybe I'll have to check that out. And then It's a Wonderful Life actually came in at number one. Uh, George Bailey, right? Great character. Um, I've seen it, you know, I guess, I guess I've probably just seen it so much that it just kind of doesn't, it, it doesn't rank up there as one of my top ones, but yeah, there were some, some interesting movies. Um, so anyway, what, what kind of uh, Christmas movies do you have? Um, let me know what uh, which ones you think are uh, your top, your favorite picks. And, you know, I was on Facebook uh, for a couple of minutes just checking. Um, I don't know, just checking because everybody does. And I saw a really, really good meme that I liked. And, you know, me as a writer, some things just kind of resonate, some things don't. But this, this was a, a meme that said, when you read a line that is so well written, you just close the book and stare at the wall for a minute. And of course, anonymous. And you can notice who said that. But have you ever read a book that was that, you know, a line in a book that was that powerful? You just kind of shut it so you can think about it for a little bit. I've man, I, I hope I've written some lines like that for people. I know sometimes I've written a few lines, you know, where I've just stopped to think about it after I wrote it. Um, but I, I don't know if other people kind of have that same. I don't know that romantic view of a book like I do. Like any book, they're all in some way, shape, or form powerful 
with something to learn from them, right? Even fiction. Uh, there, there are lessons and morals to take heart to. Certain lines that I'll read that a character, something a character says or or a line about a character or, or a scene that just makes you stop and think. Uh, I, I love coming across uh, um, lines in books like that. And a lot of them, you know, like a F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, I go back to that as one of my favorite, my you know, my favorite writer. Uh, there's so many lines. Uh and uh, it's it's amazing uh, just how powerful a book can be, you know. Um, there was uh, actually one really, um, I'm trying to think of what lines uh, I had uh, I had read in, in certain books um, that just that just made all the difference in the world. Uh, again, if you go back to like Great Gatsby. Um, at the very end, you know, a friend of mine does a, a thing on, on Facebook on Thursdays called Thoughtful Thursday, and she'll take a, a, you know, quote and just kind of talk a little bit about her interpretation of it and what it means, you know, something really, really powerful quote. And one of the most powerful quotes that I read ever <coughs> was toward the end of The Great Gatsby. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I mean, just, uh, yeah, and I'm not going to expound on that. Go read that book. If you've never read The Great Gatsby, you're missing one of the greatest books of all time. And there's so many lessons in that book about life and why we struggle in vain for things we think we want when they're really not what we need or want or we've moved past. And that was the purpose of that line. You know, beating on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Why are we trying to recapture a past instead of, you know, move on and capture a future. Anyway, that's just, you know, random thinking. But great, great line, nonetheless. So since we're here in December, and I wanted to actually get to a few uh, more episodes under my belt, get to a 100th episode by the end of the year, which I will do. I may have to double up on some episodes uh, this month, and I'm going to be gone most of next week, so I going to be taxing, but we'll do it. I wanted to actually take a, just a few minutes, and I want to read a short story that most of you have never heard. I wrote this a few years back, and I, I let it be used in an anthology uh, from a, with a local author's guild, a regional author's guild. And um, so I never really put it in any of my books. Um, I, I used it online, I think, on my website when I still had a website. But it was one of those things where I never knew how many hits I was getting. I wasn't selling anything on it, so it was just kind of like a, you know, just an unnecessary expense. And going into the pandemic, I thought, eh, I'll just get rid of it because it was always something where I had to update. And if you're updating your social media and trying to update a website, trying to keep a job, you know, work your job, it's just, anyway, it just, just became a little something I didn't want to do anymore. Um, so I wanted to read this story. It's really, it's kind of funny. So sit down, give me about five minutes, you, you might like this. It's called Long Live the King, Baby. Did you ever hear about the time that Elvis accidentally showed up in Richlands? Yes, that Elvis, the king of rock and roll. He was passing through, driving a beat-up Ford Mustang that was at least 10 years old and was in desperate need of an oil change when he blew a tire and skidded off the road and darn near crashed into the Tasty Freeze right across from the high school. That was back in 1984. 
I remember it well. He was standing around the garage over by what used to be the old Flannery Theater in the middle of town when he said that Van Halen group was onto something with that jump song of theirs. Now I know what you're thinking, and I tell you now to keep it to yourself. Elvis Aaron Presley did not die in August of 1977. No, he died years later, I hear tell, in a tornado in Oklahoma that destroyed his trailer and took his life in June of 2006 at the age of 71. In a separate tragedy, a second tornado came through 20 minutes later and destroyed his bass boat. Now, around these parts, it isn't smart to question the mortality of the king. He drove through here in 1984 and slid his car directly up to the Tasty Freeze, flat tire and all, strutted up to the window wearing his vintage lady killer sunglasses, and ordered a burger, fries, and a Pepsi Cola. You try and tell anybody any different around these parts, and you'll find yourself in the middle of the scrap. I couldn't believe it when I saw him. I knew it was him. My daddy said that son of a gun wasn't dead. He told me that the colonel staged the whole thing because Elvis would be more worth more dead than alive. And boy, was he right. Some people thought it was a scheme that the colonel concocted, that Elvis recorded a bunch of songs before he faked his death so they could say they found the long-lost recordings of the king or some such nonsense to make a zillion dollars. As it turns out, coming right from the king himself, he forgot where he stashed the recordings and decided to give up on the entire plan. He wanted to tour America as a regular old feller until he found some place to settle down. He leaned against his car, sipping his soda with a furious thirst. We all stared at him, me being the youngest one of the group. I was lucky that day. My big sister took me to the Tasty Freeze to hang out with her and her friends. High school girls, yeah. She was determined to beat the shyness out of me one way or another, and a few girls flirting with me and playing with my curly blonde hair went a long way to getting rid of it and making me a more confident fella in the years to come. I wasn't the only one pleased to see the young ladies. Elvis noticed them immediately, and there wasn't a more hip guy on the planet than Elvis Aaron Presley. The girl swooned the moment he opened his mouth and said those famous words, to the woman working behind the counter at the Tasty Freeze. Thank you. Thank you very much, he said with a wide, toothy grin. There wasn't a young woman in earshot that didn't smile at him, not a young man in the vicinity that wasn't envious. You, young fella, he called out, pointing at me. You ever changed a flat tire before? No, sir, I surely haven't, I squawked. He called me over and pulled the spare tire from his trunk. It was the first time I'd ever done any real work with my hands, except for fishing and whatever task my mom set for me to do outside her house. But this was different. I was helping Elvis Presley fix his car. We toiled around in the heat for a few minutes, and before I knew it, we had his spare tire on, and we were on our way to the garage downtown. My sister and her friends followed us downtown, having sworn to our mother and the good Lord above that she wouldn't let me out of her sight. I sat there in the front seat, sipping on my vanilla milkshake and listening to the radio with Elvis. You know, kid, some of this stuff shouldn't pass for rock and roll, and I'd know all about that, he roared. I hear you, Mr. Elvis. It didn't matter what he said. I was likely to agree with him anyway. When was Elvis ever wrong about anything? It didn't take long for the old beat-up Mustang to get an oil change and a new tire. 
the king was anxious to get on the road. He was anxious to giddy up on down the road and see this place called Myrtle Beach. In all these years on the road, he'd never performed there. And heard through the grapevine there was going to be an Elvis impersonation contest down there. He was ready to boogie on down the road with a few adult beverages in his back seat, but he realized it was getting late in the day, and he figured it was best to settle down in a room at Claypool Hill, just down the town, just down the road from Richlands. The lady working in the lobby was thrilled to see that the king was still alive. She claimed that she never had a doubt, but we all figured better after she failed to lie with a straight face. That's what happens when you aren't a true believer. Elvis had met many a person he thought was a crazy man. He didn't care. He took the high road. Say, where can a fellow find some barbecue ribs around here, he inquired before he emptied the travel bags from his car. A couple hours later, as the story goes, Elvis made his entrance into Good Time Charlie's. I hear tell that was the kind of place people went if they wanted to drink beer. That's all I knew about it at the time. But Elvis strutted into the place as if he owned it in order to play the ribs, soda pop, and a grilled cheese sandwich. An odd combination, to be sure. After a half hour or so, as rumor goes, Johnny Waterbank sauntered up to the table where the king was eating his meal, specifically made for royalty. For those of you that don't know Johnny Waterbank, he was best known to me as Amber Waterbank's dad. To everyone else, he was known as Johnny Waterbank, Elvis impersonator extraordinaire. He was local royalty. He really captured the persona of Elvis during the chubby years, the years when he wore his famous jumpsuit, the years when he unfortunately began to forget many of his lyrics during his live shows. I don't have a doubt in the world that you are the real Elvis, Johnny said with his thick Appalachian drawl. What in the world brings you here, King? He was on his way to Myrtle Beach by way of Cincinnati when he got off course and found himself lost in these Appalachian mountains. At least he finally got to see the Cumberland Gap, he said. Despite being lost, he enjoyed the drive of the scenery and admitted that he was in no particular hurry these days. Elvis looked Johnny up and down and chuckled. You know, they say imitation is the best form of flattery. You wear that look well. Of course, that made Johnny's day, and he confessed that if you're going to imitate someone, you might as well go all out. Who better to imitate than the king of rock and roll? Absolutely no one. Just as they began talking, Elvis noticed three other impersonators coming into the joint. By chance, it was an Elvis impersonation event that night, each participant singing an Elvis song and being voted on by three judges for the event. Elvis couldn't resist. He entered the contest without a second thought. There's going to be a great chance to tune up before the contest in Myrtle Beach. His performance was flawless. Despite confessing that he hadn't sung in years except in the shower, he admitted that he didn't miss the intimacy of this or he admitted that he did miss the intimacy of the small audiences, but overall he was glad to leave the chaos of being the king behind him. He even did a few subtle karate moves on stage during his performance, the ones he was famous for. Johnny Waterbank, local hero and Elvis fanatic, was the last one to go on stage. He said there was no way he could follow up that performance, but he'd do his best. In fact, he said that Elvis was great in all ways. He was a proud American the day Nixon made Elvis an honorary member of the DEA. 
as tough as Elvis was, Waterbank continued, he could have been one of those guys trained to protect the president. Now we all know that if Elvis had become a member of the Secret Service, there was no way anyone would have risked taking a shot at Reagan if they thought they might miss and hit the king or risk the wrath of those sweet karate moves. It was high praise for sure. Johnny Waterbank, our local Elvis, was lauded by the king who threw his support behind him to win the contest. It was a unanimous decision and Johnny hugged the king for his accolades. That's when the king grabbed the microphone and directed the DJ to hit his music. Elvis and Johnny belted out all shook up. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elvis said to the roar of the crowd. A standing ovation ensued, and the chant of Elvis could be heard as far away as the parking lot at the Waffle and Egg across the way. By now, the crowd had swollen to the legal limits of the fire marshal, who himself was on the premises to witness this historic event that is still whispered about among certain circles to this day. No one will lay claim to who upset Elvis and drove him to the edge. Elvis was applauding the crowd, reminiscing about the countless miles he had logged on the road over the years touring, hundreds of miles between cheering and adoring fans. Who would you like to tour with? One fan from the crowd shouted out. Oh, that's an easy question, man, he said with a smile. Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash. Both were great friends of mine on the road. I had a bigger entourage, but sometimes skipped out on riding the bus or taking the plane to ride along with old Fleetwood in an old Fleetwood Cadillac, some of the crew following along in an old Hudson Hornet. They always had a driver. No rock star was supposed to drive. So they loaded up the cars with tons of shoes, few clothes, very little food, but stocked with whiskey, comic books, and cherry bombs. If they needed food along the way, usually traveling several hundred miles a day, they would stop and pick up something not fit for most humans at gas stations along the way. And at each stop, they would load up the toilets with enough cherry bombs to blow the porcelain amenities sky high as they drove away. They tore ass across the countryside on road trips, now considered legendary in the world of rock and roll and country music. Elvis continued to reminisce. They were road animals half-drunk, half-loaded, angry beasts that were flung from the stage at night back into the American landscape to wreak havoc. To those left in their wake, Elvis confessed that they must have looked like raving mad lunatics, blowing up toilets across the land, setting fires by the roadside from state to state, stealing televisions from hotel rooms and blaming larceny on each other when the authorities were called. No one ever got in trouble because Elvis was the king. And that's just the way it was, baby. The crowd was more interested in hearing about Johnny Cash at this point, being that Elvis and Cash were looked at as royalty around these parts. There was Jesus, and then next in the pecking order was Cash and Elvis. And to their amazement, they swooned when he confirmed the vicious drinking and drunken rages of their other hero, that the stories were true, and now the good Johnny Cash had found his better angels and made them all proud. The fights. Elvis recalled the fights that Cash would start after a half bottle of whatever and how it terrified the band. The only one with enough moxie to stand up to the brutal son of a bitch was Elvis. He'd use his karate moves to toss the drunken lunatic around until he got tired and passed out. The crowd roared in laughter and excitement at the stories of traveling with his fellow legend. That was, 
until Elvis used a few colorful cuss words to describe him. Referring to him as a wild man possessed without a care of the carnage left in his path. Not to man, woman, or child. Well, the crowd didn't like the way he besmirched their hero. The songwriter that sang to their souls, spoke to their hearts. All it took was one madman from the crowd to shout out an insult to the king in reference to his mother. Like I said, no one around these parts will lay claim to who threw the first punch. It's a sore subject because to admit to the, that the king drew first blood would be like breaking up with your best girl. And to admit that the crowd jumped in and he still threw them a beating only adds to the pain that they had uh, their hearts broken by a legend that night. Chairs were splintered, tables were broken, and glass was shattered. It was a fight so raucous that the police didn't bother to get involved. They just stood by cheering on the king, confused as what to do, and a bit intimidated by the carnage Elvis was throwing down on his sudden detractors. He picked up his broken lady killer sunglasses from the stage and slipped them in his pocket. And then he walked over to his waitress without missing a beat and flashed a big grin, left her a $20 tip and a few extra bucks to cover the damages. He stepped over the crying bodies and strutted out the door. That's when he said it. Not a soul will deny that part for sure. He fished in his pocket and pulled out his car keys and looked back at the devastation behind him. He looked on at the police in the parking lot before he got in his car. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> yep, that was my little funny little Elvis, uh, Elvis story. So hopefully you guys like that. Hopefully you stuck around long enough to listen to the end of it. But I always thought that was kind of funny. What if Elvis showed up and whipped everyone's ass in town? And that's what happened. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Gonzo Chronicles. I might actually be a little daring and read uh, an excerpt from Tales from the Sunset Pub. Completely politically incorrect book. So some of you who are my fans or enjoy this stuff, you'll love it. Actually, I based that book on a group of savages from Cincinnati that I still call friends. So if you want to buy yourself a little something for Christmas this year, jump on Amazon Look me up, Cyrus Alderwood. Pick up one of my books. If you like short stories and you don't mind the uh, college humor, Tales from the Sunset Pub, it might be for you. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. I certainly appreciate it. I'll see you down the road.